This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who will offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome back to another edition of Business Impact. We are heading towards the spring. There's so many different definitions of when spring starts according to different calendars and different parts of the world, but it, it is on the way. One way you look at it or the other, even the odd crocus breaking up through the soil. It's great to see it. Of course, we do have still a fair bit of wind and rain and cold around, but things are looking good as the year unfurls itself to us, which is just great news and lifts everyone's spirits. Now, we've had a great few conversations already to kick off the year. I was looking back over some of our recent episodes and that great diversity is still there. We've had people running garages <laughs> like Apple Green, which was a great interview and a very interesting one as well. And in recent weeks, we've been talking about uh, the gig economy and Uber and uh, ride sharing companies and all sorts of stuff. So we've had a good flow of ideas and a good mix and eclectic topics all in there, packed in for you. So hopefully you've been enjoying them as we've been putting them out on our platforms. Today's conversation is quite different, though, and it's quite an, an unusual one for us. But it's going to be, I think, as a result of that, quite a lively conversation because we're moving into the healthcare and not-for-profit sector, which we haven't, hands up, we haven't done enough on previously. We haven't had enough conversations in this area, but we are going to start right at the top with one of the best organisations and one of the most recognised organisations. You've probably been involved in some of their fundraising. You've possibly been at some of their events. You may even have had to um, take part in some of their services and avail of some of their services, depending on your family circumstances and so on. And that is Laura Lynn. And we have the Chief Executive, Kerry McClafferty, as our guest. Uh, good afternoon to you, Kerry. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. As I said, we haven't talked to uh, enough people before this from not-for-profits. Uh, so we're going to have a whole different type of a conversation, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to. You are a physiotherapist by training. You've had a very interesting career. I think you, you can talk to us in a few minutes about you're still waiting for Manchester United to call you up for to do uh, some of the sports medicine that was your original training. But tell us a little bit about Laura Lynn to start off with. Um, it's just got a simple strap line on your website where it describes itself as Ireland's Children's Hospice. But that, of course, is only an umbrella term. There's so much going on there. You have such a multiplicity of services. But just tell anyone who doesn't know, which is probably a small number of people, but who doesn't know the full impact and, and the scale of stuff that's done at Laura Lynn? Sure. Laura Lynn is, it is, you're, you're right in that it, it's effectively, it's an umbrella organisation. Laura Lynn, I suppose, has its, its origins in the Children's Sunshine Home. We're based here in Leopardstown in South County Dublin. And the Children's Sunshine Home was established back in the 1920s as a, a Leopardstown at the time was considered the countryside, if you can believe that, in Dublin. And so it was for inner city children to come out um, for respite, particularly those with rickets, um, which would have been prevalent back in the day. And they would come out to the countryside for some respite and sunshine, uh, as the name suggests, for some vitamin D to, to help their condition of rickets. Um, and then as the years progressed, uh, it moved into being a disability service for children with very complex physical and intellectual disabilities to come for respite and eventually residential care. So, so that element of the service is, is still uh, very much operational today. And then as the, the Sunshine Home grew, it, it realised that there was a, a, a need for children who were coming towards end of life care um, to, to avail of hospice supports, which wasn't a thing in Ireland at the time. And simultaneously, uh, there was a family, Jane and Brendan McKenna, 
very sadly lost their two daughters, Laura and Lynn, within a couple of years of each other. Laura was was a three-year-old girl who had a heart defect. Um, and it, very sadly, on her last surgery, um, she didn't survive the surgery. And on the very same day, her elder sister, Lynn, was diagnosed with leukaemia. So out of that unbelievable tragedy, um, her parents created the Laura Lynn Foundation, the Lorlin Foundation was, I suppose, a charity to raise funds for, for building a hospice, which wasn't available for, for their two daughters. Um, and they joined forces with the Children's Sunshine Home. And Laura Lynn was, was born, effectively. Um, it opened its doors in September 2011. And it is, to this day, Ireland's only children's hospice, uh, where we care for children with palliative care needs and provide a huge range of services from nursing care, very clearly, um, both in the hospice and in the community. We provide end-of-life care, obviously, as is core to hospice, but a huge range of other family services, uh, a full range of multidisciplinary supports um, that's right, that support the, the child, but also the entire family, the siblings and grandparents. So we're busy. We have a huge amount going on. And you've got 172 staff, uh, which is it just gives you a sense, uh, or at least hints at this, the scale of the operation. But let's go right back a little bit about yourself, because you are very busy. You have a very busy day job. And then as I was talking to you just before we started, you keep adding all these courses and qualifications and extra things you're doing. So uh, you're a sucker for punishment in that sense. And we'll get through to some of those in a few minutes. But talk us back how you ended up. As I said, you were a physiotherapist uh, initially. You went to the US to study. So just tell us from there onwards uh, how, how your journey has been. I suppose if you had asked me uh, back when I was 18 or 20 where I saw myself, physios tend to have a very clear career path and it tends to be very linear. You go from being a, a basic grade physio to a senior physio, possibly then to a clinical specialist and maybe to a physio manager post. And so I was I was headed off on that on that course. I came back from America having done my my degree in sports medicine and I went on and did my master's in physiotherapy in Belfast. Uh, and came back right smack in the middle of a HSC moratorium uh, where recruitment pause was in, was in, a, in operation. So my dreams of working at Manchester United, as I say, were, were put on pause and I took... There's my- still time, there's still time. <laughs> there is, I hope, maybe. They need help, as you know, they need help. <laughs> so I, I, I basically took any job I could in the HSC, which at the time was in an organisation called Stewart's Hospital um, over in Palmerstown. Um, and they provide support to adults and children with intellectual disabilities and physical disabilities. I had done a rotation in paediatrics, which I was kind of going, well, if it doesn't work out with Man United, I do kind of like working with kids. So I, I took up the job in Stewart's and I was there for about seven years, all the while keeping an eye that I knew that Laura Lynn was being built at the time. I was keeping an eye because some of the children that I was I was caring for in Stewart's were at end of life as well. So I was very keen to get involved in the palliative side of things. So when Laurel and opened its doors in 2011, um, they they headhunted me, I suppose, effectively to the team. I was very active as a physio in, in the Irish Society of Chartered Physiotherapists as well. So I, I had kind of developed an expertise in, in paediatrics and intellectual disability and was working with RCSI, providing annual lectures for uh, for basic grade physios or, 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 or physio trainees, I should say, in the area. I was also on the board of directors of the Irish Society of Chartered Physios, so I was kind of, I suppose, fairly known in, in, in those circles. And so when Laura Lynn opened, um, they asked me would I join the team because they were only a, a newly established organisation. They had a basic grade 
physiotherapy role available, uh, which would have been a, a significant step back from where I was. However, much to the chagrin of my family, I did take that step back, probably the best decision I ever made. For me, it was the opportunity to move, to come into a new organisation that I felt was like a blank canvas and um, palliative care and paediatrics was so new in Ireland and hospice care was the only one I really felt that I could kind of, you know, put my stamp um, in, in helping to shape physio service in, in that area. So uh, I, I joined the team and uh, and that was the beginning of my journey in Laura Lynn back, uh, back in 2012. Brilliant. And, and tell us a little bit about the the drivers for all of this. Obviously, you know, as you say yourself, uh, you could be spending the rest of your career looking at uh, hamstrings and all, all of that, right? Uh, but you've gone a different direction. Uh, palliative care, and people who aren't in that area would think that's that's tough. You know, that's tough. It, it's it's real life. It's often tragedy. It can be tears. It can be big, big traumas. Tell us a bit about the driver for you. And, and has that driver changed over the years or is it still the same driver all along? It's one of the things I get asked probably the most when you say to somebody where you work, no matter what role, I, I've, I've had so many different hats in Laura Lynn over, over the, the 11 years I've been here, but everyone kind of goes, oh my God, how could you work in a children's hospice? It must be so, so terribly sad. And my response hasn't changed um, in all the time I've been here. It, it's to say that, you know, I suppose there's, there's this misconception around hospice care uh, and people think when they think hospice, they think death and, and dying, which that's very much a core part of what we do. However, children's hospice care is a little bit different to adult hospices in that typically adult hospices tend to be focused around that, that end of life piece. And when an adult goes into a hospice, it tends to be a very short prognosis um, and, and death effectively is imminent. Whereas with children's hospice care, children get referred into us at a very early stage of diagnosis and can be with us for several years. So there are some children actually who have been who, who've been on the entire journey with the hospice since it opened and are still alive today because palliative care for children is a journey. So the, the fact of being with a child and a family on that journey, so much of our work is about making really special memories for the family, making sure that they have time to spend together as a family, taking away, I suppose, the concerns or the, the day-to-day where mum and dad have to be nurse and doctor and actually allowing mum and dad just to be mum and dad because we take care of the medical piece. So there's an, you know, 95% probably of our days here in the hospice are, it's a really, really happy, uh, buzzy place. There's a real feeling of warmth and family and comfort and security when you come in here. So it's a gorgeous place to work, albeit, yes, we have very sad days, but it's such a rewarding career. You know, if you talk to any of, of our staff, be they nurses, be they fundraisers, be they uh, working in our, in our household team or, you know, our finance team, everyone has this deep sense of purpose for, you know, the support that no matter what your role is in, in Laurel Inn, you're ultimately impacting on families who are going through, you know, one of the diff- most difficult journeys as anyone could, could go through. So that sense of purpose and reward is what keeps all of us in Laurel Inn going every day. But how much um, emotional detachment do you have to have or, or how do you handle that, Kerry, in the sense of obviously you can't spend your whole days being upset about what's going on around you at times or the stories or the personal stories, but equally you can't be just a stone wall either. So how do you kind of get that balance right? I mean, it's probably something you've got better at over the years, I'm guessing. I've always said to myself, if it gets to the point where a family story doesn't affect me and doesn't upset me, then I need to leave. <laughs> 
uh, because I think it's, you know, we are all humans and we are all impacted by, by grief and we have this inherent empathy with, with, with other human beings who are going through trauma. So, you know, if, if a story doesn't affect me, then I have become a stone wall and, and I, I need to leave. I need to, to, to seek a new new job. So I'm very conscious that it's okay to, to let things affect you because because what we do is is so profound. However, you know, on, on the professional side, we make sure there are a huge amount of supports that we have set up and, and within the system of Laura Lynn, we have debriefing, we have, you know, we have psychologists on support, we have uh, employee assistance programs. So there's lots of uh, structural supports and peer um, debrief sessions that are that are there to support staff professionally, um, but then also there's that kind of you know informally there's that collaborative bit around leaning on your your colleagues because everyone is part of the same journey. So you know th- there's there's a lot of sharing of how people are feeling. It's it's a very kind of open place. And then you know staff have their own ways of you don't take it home with you. You know it's it's okay to be sad in work because work it's part of what you do. But when when you go out the doors of Laura Lynn, yes, stuff can stay with you in the back of your mind, but you know, staff, I think you do learn to compartmentalise your work and your, your life. I suppose that what's been more nuanced for me is um, I had a, my own little girl three years ago. Right when I started as CEO, I was pregnant. Um, so timing of all of that. But I find now being a mum, I think it affects me maybe even a little bit more because I, I, I can envisage what I would feel like and go through if, if anything were to happen to my little girl. So I feel it maybe hits me a little bit more even now than it did previously. But it's so important to, to, to like you say, to have I suppose your, your, your life balance, peace, whatever you do for your own mental health outside of work um, is really important. And just walk me through, uh, Kerry, the, the provision. What I mean by that is obviously it's a hospice. It's mainly presumably privately funded. So it's, it's or does it have some state funding? or like, In other words, are you guys doing all of this or is there other agencies and forces and, and organisations involved? Or is this just the state doesn't have a hospice for children so you guys have stepped in? Or how, how does that all work? Because I'm just trying to get a sense of what you guys do and what other people may be doing. What I'd say is that we are a very important cog in a wheel that, you know, that, that is almost like a wraparound service for uh, for children and families who have palliative care needs. So hospice, yes, we are the only hospice. And yes, we were established, you know, through fundraising and through a charitable effort. At the time in 2009 is actually the, the date of the, the national children's palliative care policy dates. So it predates the hospice. And as such, current policy, as it's still, it hasn't been updated since 2009, something that we're working to change, might I add. But as a result, Laura Lynn isn't included in the national policy. So effectively, when Jane and Brendan McKenna joined forces with Children's Sunshine Home to create Laura Lynn, there was nothing in policy. So so the state didn't subscribe, if you like, to a hospice or or, um, the need for a hospice in Ireland. So as a result, it was purely for the first, I suppose, 10 years of its existence, it was funded purely through the generosity of the the public in Ireland um, and and was solely reliant upon fundraised income. I am delighted to announce that on our 10th anniversary and shortly after I came into role as CEO, one of the the first successes that I had was um, establishing an element of state funding. So we had we had now continually lobbied in the existence of the hospice, you know, to, to the government to provide supports. And we submitted a business case that I developed in 2019 and on foot of our strategic plan, our last strategic plan that was 2019 to 2023. 
um, was to, to get state funding. Um, and so in 2020, as I say, when we were coming to celebrate 10 years of the hospice, we, uh, we got uh, 1.5 million euro of annual recurring funding, which was fantastic to get that support. And since 2021, when that, when that came in, we've now increased that funding. So we now get 2.3 million uh, in funding from, from the state. But the remainder of our funding is still hugely reliant upon fundraising. So, so about 70% or thereabouts of our, of our income we need to raise through fundraising efforts. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like the year starts, OK, you could have had a wonderful 2023, but you start presumably at zero to get to that 70%. How frightening, daunting, etc. is it to go into each year knowing that, hey, folks, we think what we're doing is, is very good. We think it's very important. But if we don't get to this particular figure, we'll either have to cut back or our service quality will, will diminish, etc. It, it must be it must be a strange feeling because obviously companies to some degree have that problem, but it, it's slightly different. But you guys just don't, there's no guarantee that that 70% will be there. There could be a recession. People might just keep their hands in their pockets or whatever. So how do you deal with that? Or is it just life? Is that just the core mission that you're on and you get on with it? Or I'm just trying to get an idea of the psychological um, burden of that each year starting kind of with zero, you know? So fundraising and, and most um, nonprofits will have some degree of, of a fundraising mix, if you like. So there's different ways that charities will fundraise. So for us, it kind of spans across four key areas. So uh, so one is your community fundraising. So that includes anything kind of from schools doing a bake sale or it can be, you know, people running a marathon or doing any of the, the those Facebook challenges that you see. Um, so that's kind of your community. And those are, you know, those are hard to predict because that, as you say, depends on who who does what for you and, and how, how well you can engage with, with the public to, to do stuff for you. The second category is your corporate fundraising. And that is where, and there's a huge amount, I suppose, in terms of, of the corporate side of things with the evolution of ESG um, and, and uh, CSR initiatives, there is a huge, I suppose, um, impetus for for corporate corporate organisations to show their demonstrating their support for society and through that by through supporting charities, and um, so your corporates make up a huge proportion um, of of our support, and we have some absolutely incredible charity partners, you know, across the corporate sector, and um, that provide and and that can be that can be anything from you know a company donating a thousand euros to the likes of we have an incredible partnership with Microsoft for example um, and last so over the course of 10 years um, you know we, we've raised uh, over a million euros so that's the, the, the scale of, of your corporate support that you can get um, the third strand um, is around what we call individual giving um, and so this is where and I'm sure you'll have seen the likes if you're walking down uh, I think they're at the end of Grafton Street there coming across Westmoreland Street and, and they'll stop and see will you sign up for a direct debit for, for, for a particular charity and so that's called individual giving where it's, it's, it's kind of planned regular donations where you, you, you sign up for a direct debit and you give your 10 euro or 20 euro a month whatever it is um, and so that's that's a sustainable um, kind of source of income. So depending on the number of individuals you have that are signed up for regular giving, it kind of starts your, your zero figure at the start of the year. If you know you have a thousand donors that are signed up for, for direct debits and they're all giving you 10 euro a month, at least you know you have that much banked, uh, certainly for the first month anyway. Now they can drop off at any time, obviously. And um, so that's another strand. And then your final strand that we focus on is kind of your your major philanthropy and legacy giving. So this is a, a, 
Again, this one is hard to predict because you're engaging with kind of high net worth individuals um, or for people who are looking to give, um, you know, a proportion of their estate um, in their will. So uh, that is, is really difficult to kind of quantify because you never know what's going to come your way through through a legacy uh, and then through engaging with high net worth individuals trying to engage them in projects that they have an affiliation for or, you know, have some sort of a connection with the service. So so your fundraising avenues that you can explore are, are quite broad and they all bring in, I suppose, different income streams for us. So, yes, it's extremely daunting. Go back to the, the psychological burden of it. I, I think you've got the track record to, to lower the, the, the stresses and strains of that because you have been so good at doing that over, over the last few years. And um you did take up your own role in 2020. So that, that was a tough time, obviously, with the pandemic and so on. Have you enjoyed the role the first few years? Has it been different to what you thought? I mean, obviously, leading an organisation of that size and one that's so visible as well. Like, I mean, I'd be amazed if anyone who's listening, apart from a small number who don't know Laurel Lynn and at least know vaguely the, the work that they do. Um, what, what have you liked or what have you not liked? It's just that switch from being, say, head of operations or way back when you were a physiotherapist and now your management, uh, what's that sort of a transition been like? Having been in the organisation and having worn so many different hats along the road, so I, I suppose I understand Laura Lynn literally inside out. And from the ground up, I have, you know, cared hands on for some of the children and families that are still with us. I have worked as peers and co- uh, with, with the staff in, on the front lines. I have worked in, in middle management um, and in service development. I've worked in operations. So I understand, I suppose, the, the non-clinical aspect and, and the logistical side of the organisation. So having that cumulative building of, of knowledge and experience of the organisation was was fundamental, I suppose, in me having the confidence, I suppose, first and foremost, in putting myself forward for the CEO role, because I felt I, w- I was so familiar with the organisation. And I suppose I had developed this, this knowledge that, I suppose, enabled me to, to understand the challenges that the organisation um, experiences, that the, the, the challenges that our staff face on a day to day, but also in terms of where we needed to go as a service in growing it. So that was the first thing that 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 I suppose without that, I don't know how confident I would have been in going for the role, uh, let alone getting it. But that was really helpful. And in terms of the the transition was was difficult. Um, and I suppose anyone out there who has experience in uh, in moving or or, or pr- uh, being promoted within an organisation, I suppose where you're going from being someone's peer to then being their manager, that's probably what was what was the most daunting for me. Now, thankfully, I have an absolutely incredible team and a really and I think it's part of the culture that we try to espouse here in Laurel Inn and that, you know, we're, we're very open and honest with each other. So I may, I was able to have those conversations with my team and, and to build the new relationship that I now needed to have, as opposed from being their peer to now, now leading them and, and managing the team. So it was very easy for me, I would say. Um, it had the potential not to be. And so I was nervous about that, but it, it, thankfully it went really, really well. And then in terms of the timing of it all, um, yeah, as I say, the timing probably couldn't have been worse in that COVID had had literally hit in, in the March and I took over on the 1st of May. So I actually interviewed 
around just before Easter. I was thinking you're interviewed in a mask or something. <laughs> just pictured well, the scene. We, we had all moved to, to Zoom, had had just started right, okay. to, to become part of our lives. So I was trying to figure out even how to access Zoom. It was a, a really surreal experience to not be in a room in an interview with somebody. So that was difficult. You weren't sure, were you going to get your message across? Were you going to get your passion across? Obviously, one of the first questions that I got asked in the interview was, we're in the middle of a crisis, what are you going to do? This was something that, you know, I suppose Ireland and, and the world had never anticipated, ha- you know, this type of a, a global pandemic. And so, um, you know, it was it was a difficult time to come in because services were were absolutely, you know, massively impacted in terms of how we, we had to shut down uh, elements of our services in terms of limiting the numbers both of staff and of, of service users that were coming into the hospice. Um, but we still had to maintain our residential services for, for, for those individuals that are still living here in the Children's Sunshine Home. We had to balance for having frontline staff who we were saying, you have to come to work. And then our non-clinical staff, we were saying, you can't be at work, stay at home. And creating these kind of nearly subcultures of, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a them and us nearly situation of, of staff who were on the front lines going, oh, they're all swamming off at home. And you people at home going, oh, I'd really love to be in work. I'm missing my colleagues and I'm missing the, the interaction. So it was it was an interesting um, period. But um, I think the thing that probably pulled us all together again is, is going back to that core part of, of the purpose of what we do and supporting families and everyone pulling out the stops to make sure that we did everything that we did to make sure that we continued to, to, to provide the service. Um, so that was kind of what kept us all together and, and kept me and the management team and, um, going really. Sure. Now, you've done an MBA at UCD. We have to disclose that, right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Which hopefully has equipped you with some of the skills that you were able to draw uh, during this period. Looking more widely at the not-for-profit sector, and and I'm sure your day job is busy enough to, to doesn't give you much opportunity to look around you, but... How do you think things are going in the next few years or, or what do you foresee in your own in your own place, but also in other not for profits? And I'm sure you're, you, you deal with others and you have um, connections into other not for profits. Do, do you see the thing developing more, getting more professionalized or do you actually see the kind of the burden of all the, the various obligations that a lot of them have now kind of getting heavier or, or do you think we can do a lot more in Ireland because we're coming from low base in some senses? Like we, I was only... Looking at an amazing statistic recently, the Department of Health itself was only set up in the 1940s, so we haven't really been, we're kind of late comers into the provision of, of um, services in many respects. But do, do you see, are you optimistic about not-for-profits in the future years from your vantage point? Yeah, look, I, I think there is a, a massive, particularly in, in, in healthcare, I suppose, the, the, the voluntary and charity sector, I suppose, from a healthcare perspective, uh, which is probably where I'm, I'm most familiar with, um, and there's a massive um, proportion of, of healthcare that is delivered by uh, the voluntary sector. Obviously, the, the HSC provides a huge amount, but the, the voluntary sector really does come in um, and support the, the HSC. I don't think health services would function um, if, if it weren't for the voluntary sector. So there is that as, as I suppose, the, the, the first I suppose, irrefutable fact. Um, so I, and I don't think from a financial perspective that the HSE could fund all charitable organisations. So I think long term, there will always be, I feel, a need for the voluntary sector. Um, I would say in terms of my optimism for the sector, um, it's a really interesting one because um, I think there are certainly challenges that, uh, that we're going to face both nationally and globally in terms of this 
sense of, I think, perma-crisis is a term that I've heard. You know, we have the cost of living crisis, we have the housing crisis, we have the pandemic, we have all of these uh, crises that are existing and continuing one after the other, after the other, after the other, and all of which have an impact on charities. Because the Irish people in particular were known and research would show that we are particularly responsive in terms of a crisis. Uh, and, and if you if there's an earthquake appeal or, or Gaza, to take it as a very current example, the Irish people give very generously. And, you know, when Ukraine, I suppose, when it initially kicked off, there was a huge response. And the Irish public respond really, really well to these kind of very acute crises as they happen. And any time there is a new crisis that comes up, it detracts from people's regular giving to the core fundamental Irish charities that do their business day after day, and it gets deflected to these new crises. And currently, I suppose, the cost of living crisis being a particular challenge as well. So people, a lot of people who would have been giving kind of those, that, that regular donation I spoke about earlier, um, you know, where they were giving their monthly direct debits, if you're looking at how can I save money here? The first thing that's going to go is these kind of what you might deem as uh, unnecessary direct debits leaving your account. Well, I'll cancel that one first of all, and there's a tenner a month or 20 euro a month saved. So I suppose uh, it, it's probably not a, a nice word to use in this context, but if you're a fundraiser, someone else who's a fundraiser is a competitor of sorts. You know, they're a competitor for the resources, I suppose, uh, even though all of the causes are all very noble. So it, it's, a, it's a strange one, isn't it? It's like It is. And it can be a bit dog-eat-dog, a little bit out there, because you, you are competing, you know, like you say, for the same pool of funds. And it's how, you know, what message and what charity is going to reach and, and how do you get your message across to try to, you know, sway people in your favour. And, and, and no cause, like you say, all causes are worthy. So how do you compare a hospice with a housing charity? And, or, you know, they're, they're, they're providing absolutely absolutely invaluable services and um, but but so it, it is it, it is very competitive and, and challenging and Kerry do you see like in terms of your 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 niche area which is is the care of um children with long-term illness and so on do you see that the state becoming more involved in that or do you see like a like the lower limbs of this world do you see it sort of staying similar or do you think the state will will, will come more into this area or you know, parents will, will say, well, the state should be more involved and this shouldn't be just, you know, private provision and fundraising and so on. Or do you see it kind of staying roughly around the same? Or, or, or is, is, is that something that you just don't even have time to think about at the moment? It's just a day-to-day head down or... What's your own view on that? For us, obviously, our, you know, we will always seek for, you know, a sustainable level of funding. And so, you know, whether that's um, it's the right balance, I suppose, between what the state um, can support and then, you know, it, what we can what we can generate through fundraising. There's been, I suppose, in palliative care more more broadly and, and hospice care, um, I suppose every adult hospice in the country um, as of next week, as it happens, uh, will be will be what's called a Section 38 organisation um, supported by the HSE. So effectively, a Section 38 organisation has an, an SLA with the HSE to provide uh, core services on behalf of the HSE. So the HSE provides 100% funding um, for their core services and all adult hospices. Um, so there were, there, were, there were four adult hospices up until very recently that were considered Section 39. And Section 39 is effectively an organisation who receives essentially grant funding, if, you, if for want of a better phrase, from the HSEs that they, like ourselves, we are a Section 39 where we receive a portion of income that we utilise to, to help provide our services, but we're not providing services on behalf of the HSE uh, as Section 38 organisations are. 
So that, that I suppose, from a, a palliative care perspective, the state do absolutely um, do see, uh, and during particularly the life cycle of this government um, that are currently sitting, you know, palliative care has been an area of focus for them and they have put a huge amount of support into palliative care services. Um, so I suppose we now, uh, as the only children's hospice, are effectively the only hospice in the country um, who, who are not a Section 38 organisation. And um, so that will certainly be, uh, I suppose, something that, that we will need to, to factor as we go forward over the course of our next strategy. What, what is the sustainable um, income that, that we aspire to? Is it that we would look to at some point become a Section 38 organisation or uh, that we would stay as a Section 39 um, that, that, that um, I suppose, has the, the difference being, too, that a Section 39 has a, an element of autonomy to to develop and grow its services and um, you know I suppose as it sees fit and, and, and be very responsive section 38 organizations have a set amount of funding to provide a set service with a set amount of staff and it's all very structured so there, there's pros and cons to both um, and uh, and it'll certainly be, be part of the future but I would say there's a real commitment I see from the current government govern, government to uh, to support palliative care that may all change in terms of priorities for you know post post general election that's that's coming our way soon. So it's uh, it'll be one to watch certainly very closely from our perspective. Yeah, I suppose as you say, the work has to be done one way or the other. Whoever whoever funds it ultimately, you know, it, it is absolutely urgent and critical for the people who are involved. Kerry, thank you very much for the conversation. It's been very interesting. As I said, it's our first uh, dipping of the toe into the waters of the not-profit sector and healthcare related. So you've kind of walked us through. And sorry for some of the questions are probably. Very work a day from your point of view, but for our listeners, uh, hopefully they've benefited from learning a lot more, but it's been fascinating. Uh, and good luck with your late retirement plan into Manchester United when that comes along, when you go back to your original calling. Uh, and good luck with all the work at Laurel Inn, the super work, and thank you for having a conversation with us today. Thank you so much. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver. We hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact.